1619, a ship named the White Lion landed in what's now the state of Virginia, and it brought something different to sell. Black people. That's at least as formative a moment for our nation as 1776 ever was. Because without black labor and culture, would the United States even be recognizable? That's the argument put forth by Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a journalist, an author, and a Howard University professor. And two years ago, she launched the 1619 Project. It's a collection of New York Times Magazine articles, photography, and podcasts. And that project used the long-ago boat landing in Virginia as a launching point to talk about Black people's roles in shaping the United States. Nicole has been praised and vilified for her work on it ever since. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Monday, Martin Luther King Day, January 17th, 2022. Today, we bring you a conversation between Nicole and Los Angeles Times executive editor, Kevin Merida. The 1619 Project is now a book, and in a live event with the LA Times Book Club, Kevin and Nicole talked about how Black people can be patriotic despite centuries of mistreatment and about using mountains of research to get back at the haters. This version of the talk has been cut down for length and clarity. Enjoy. You know, you got to let that applause sink in a little bit. Right, You know, enjoy that. Um, (laughs) The 1619 Project is a new origin story, as you described, and you have your own origin story. One of the things that I really liked about the book and and reading it are that regular people are in it. In journalism, we would call these interstitial. They're photos and snapshots and facts that intersperse it to tell you something about history. But among the people are, are your dad. You grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, and there's a picture in your opening essay of your dad, Milton Hanna, in his uniform in Germany. And you tell the story in there about your dad flying the American flag at your home, and initially you're not understanding that, and later came to an understanding of that. Tell us about that. So I was grappling with My dad, who, like many people in this room, had ancestors, grandparents, fathers, mothers who joined the military, hoping that military service would be our way to finally be recognized as real citizens. That if we showed we were willing to die for our country, that maybe, maybe that would allow our country to see us as citizens. And my dad certainly joined the military and was this extremely patriotic in a way that I found so uncomfortable as a child. I just, I'm like, I don't remember another black family that I knew who had a flag in their front yard. Like, I was like, what are we doing right now? And the flagpole is probably like 15 feet, but in my mind, it was like 100 feet. (laughs) I feel like everybody in the whole community could see the flag. And it was hard for me because I knew my dad grew up in Greenwood, Mississippi. I knew that my grandmother had had to flee the South. Other people were fleeing their country to come here, and we were having to flee our own country, trying to get the rights that immigrants could have when they stepped foot on the soil. I knew that my dad was one of the smartest men that I knew, but he was a bus driver, and he was never able to live up to his potential. And here he is flying his flag. And so, so much of that essay is trying to grapple with how do black people have this ardent patriotism for a country that has never treated us as citizens, that didn't even believe we were to be citizens. And it's me working through that in some ways to ultimately come to the conclusion that people ask 
when did you come to understand why your dad flew that flag? And it was literally in reporting this essay, so 44 years old. When I'm reading Douglas, when I'm reading Martin Delaney, when you're reading these black people who, in the midst of slavery, are saying, we're not gonna leave this country we built. There was no reason for black people to stay here. Why? Why would you stay in a country that enslaved you for 250 years? And yet that type of patriotism, which isn't flag pin wearing, it's not performative, it's not saying my country is the greatest country in the world, but it's, it's a patriotism that says those ideals were majestic and y'all might not have thought they applied to us, but we're gonna fight and make them apply to everyone. And that to me is the highest calling of patriotism and that's a patriotism I could claim. You were in Waterloo recently back, and yes. there was a gentleman, Mr. Dial, Ray Dial, who was an educator there, and I believe that he was the one through a special class that he had taught in the semester where 1619 first came into your consciousness. Mr. Dial was the teacher. He was the only black male teacher I ever had. He had taught black studies at the college level, and he just opened my world to an entire world of knowledge that I didn't even know existed. And I realized in that class when in three months he introduced me to everything from African origins of civilization to they came before Columbus to, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer um, and everything in between, that there was this whole world. And we had just been taught this very narrow view of it and that somehow I had been convinced. I mean, this is the power of an educator is you assume if it was important, your teachers would have taught it to you. And so if no one's taught it to you, it must be because black people haven't done anything worthy of them teaching us about. And in that class, it just showed me, oh wait, people have made choices. This isn't the history that happened. This is the history that they have decided we will learn about that happened. And he was that type of educator who just constantly was exposing me to new ways of thinking and one of the books he gave me was Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett, yeah. who, as you know, was also a journalist and a historian. Absolutely. I went and looked recently. I still have the highlights in the book. And it was like on page 30 that I came across the year 1619. And it was just like, it was like a, a light. Or like I describe it, I think, in, in the book as like somebody gave me oxygen for the first time. And I realized, wait, black people's lineage here goes back to before the pilgrims. But every child learns about the Mayflower and no child learns about the White Lion, and that's a choice. I talked to Mr. Dial about how our high school paper never wrote about black kids like me who were being bused into this white school. Every day we had to leave our neighborhood, ride a bus an hour each way to get an education. And classmates and many of our educators let us know every day that this was not our school. I came to Mr. Dial and I said, our paper never writes about us. And as a great black educator will do, he kept very real with me. And he says, either join the paper or write those stories yourself or shut up and don't come here. Go plan to me about it anymore. So I did. That's right, Nicole Hannah-Jones. If you want something done, you got to do it yourself. After this break, she and Kevin talk about the power of something Nicole calls ancestral intervention. The 1619 Project began as a work of journalism. Still is. It still is. But you, did you have grander plans 
from the beginning? Did you see what it could become? Hell no. No. <laughs> the original project was a grand plan. Never in the history of the Times has a single issue of the magazine, a special section, and a podcast series been dedicated to one thing. So even just pitching that was extremely ambitious, and it also then came with a great risk. Uh, I talk a lot about how in the week before publication, I was like sick. I couldn't sleep. I was worried because I had commanded all of these resources from the Times as a black woman on a project about slavery. And if no one read it, if no one cared, you know this. You've yeah, been absolutely. in the industry a long time. It closes the door. So we bear responsibility. If a white journalist pitches something ambitious and it doesn't work out, that reflects on that journalist. But if a black journalist pitches something ambitious and it doesn't work out, it reflects on all of us. The day we laid, printed out the entire magazine and put it up on the wall in the room so that we could see it in its entirety. You know, Wesley Morris and I, who wrote the music essay, he was, he was at work that day and I called him in and we just embraced each other and started sobbing. I think it's a really powerful message that you don't have to be in some exalted position to start something. And I think that's an example of leading from where you are, but still the scope, the resources, all of what went into it. How did you make that happen inside a place like the New York Times? Ancestral intervention. I say that kind of jokingly and kind of not because, I mean, I'm agnostic. I'm not, I'm not a religious person, but it's been so strange on this project because I have just felt something, like some of intervention and so many times, because there's no reason this project should exist as it does. Knowing everything that we know about the industry, to have really an unprecedented amount of resources to put into a project about slavery that, by the way, was like, you know, what made the project powerful was we were unflinching. Like, we were not telling a story that we were worried about. How does the typical New York Times reader respond to this? Will the typical New York Times reader feel comfortable? Which is so often news decisions get driven by who are the consumers of news? And we just didn't do that. It was in response to that question we've all gotten, which is, slavery was a long time ago, why don't you get over it? Black people are constantly having to answer that question in a country that can't get over slavery. And we were trying to force an acknowledgement of this thing we've treated as an asterisk that has never been an asterisk, right? Like people are like, oh, everybody knows slavery happened. Yeah, but we act like slavery was like two paragraphs in the story over there somewhere. And that the Constitution is so divine that we can't even, you know, mess with it. It shapes so much of our policy, our law. You know, you have originalists who think it was like the tablets, the stone tablets. <laughs> And yet somehow slavery, we're told, has nothing to do with our society today. And that just doesn't, it's not logical. So this project was trying to do that. But I also had to be in a certain place in my career to bring this forth. So you have to work as hard as you can to make yourself undeniable. They might still deny you in the end, but you have to put yourself in a position to be undeniable. And by the time I pitched the 1619 Project, I had a track record of showing you could do these long-form investigative pieces about racial inequality that infuse a lot of history and people would actually care and read them. So we take the project to book form. Uh, yes. There's seven new essays, more than a thousand endnotes, <laughs> a list, a long list, very impressive list of peer reviewers. Yes. What was revised, what was enhanced, and how did you go about constructing the book? 
So the beauty of the book is having faced two years of scrutiny, two years of critique, some of it, much of it bad faith, but some of it good critique, legitimate critique. We were able to use that to really strengthen, perfect the project and show our work. So every essay, if you read the original project, every single essay has been expanded significantly. And then we have new essays that go into different areas that we weren't able to talk about in the original project. So for instance, we didn't deal with um, settler colonialism or Indian removal in the original project, which I always knew was a gaping hole. You can't talk about slavery without talking about the first people who were enslaved by the colonists, which were indigenous people. And then the fact that you can't expand slavery unless you steal the land. So that was necessary. We have an amazing piece, which I actually think of all the pieces in the book will probably be most surprising to kind of your more casual reader. Um, because it also talks about the five so-called civilized tribes who engaged in chattel slavery, which we also don't learn about. That uh, there were black folks on the Trail of Tears, but they were enslaved. We don't talk about that. So there's an essay about that. We have an essay that talks about the Haitian Revolution and how it impacts the United States as well. The first project, I was very intentional that we weren't dealing with the diaspora. Like, I always feel like black Americans are asked to, like, hold the weight of the entire black diaspora, and we can never just have our own story. And this was a story about us. But having done that, now in the book form, we were able to expand it out. One thing about me is I do care deeply about the work, the research, my credibility as a journalist. So when all of these people were trying to attack the project, and especially that couple paragraphs about the American Revolution, I was like, okay, you don't know me because I'll just read more and study more and sharpen. And uh, now that section, which was a couple paragraphs, is like several pages long with lots of end notes, and I don't back off of it at all. So if you had questions about it, and what it did was it allowed me to get my vengeance through research. <laughs> Man, I feel Nicole on this one. It reminds me of the saying, never fight with someone who buys their ink by the barrel. Although I guess in this day, you'd say people who buy Google Drive memory by the terabyte or something. Anyways, you hear the music, which means we're about to hit a break. When we come back, a contentious highlight from the 1619 Project. And we're back. Now my jefe of jefes, Kevin Merida, asked Nicole Hannah-Jones about one of the biggest controversies that the 1619 Project has faced. I don't read the passage about the American Revolution. This is what got some of the historians in a lather, right? One critical reason that the colonists declared their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery in the colonies, which had produced tremendous wealth at the time, there were growing calls to abolish slavery throughout the British Empire, which would have badly damaged the economies of colonies in both North and South. And that's what some people said was not accurate. Your, your response to that, with all your research, is what? Their argument wasn't even, we feel like she worded this too strongly. We don't agree, we wouldn't have said, they said she is wrong. This never happened. 
I got it from historians. I got it from award-winning Pulitzer Prize-winning historians. And the limitations of a magazine is you can't footnote it. And so I couldn't put all the sources in, but the sources are, are in the book. But I also want us to think about logic. There were more than 13 colonies in North America, but 13 colonies who decided to join this revolt. All 13 of them engaged in slavery. All of them. We're not taught that. Most Americans actually don't know that all 13 colonies engaged in slavery, but New York was actually had the largest slave population uh, in early America. They all engaged in slavery. Then the men who wrote the Declaration, he was an enslaver. He was rich and educated and wealthy because his profession was enslavement. The man who wrote the Constitution, Madison, enslaver. The man who wrote the Bill of Rights, Mason, enslaver. George Washington, enslaver. Let's just go down the line. But somehow we're to believe slavery had nothing to do with any of this. What surprised you the most of the things that are legacies of slavery today? So we think, you know, Slavery ends in 1865, and black people just walk into freedom. But you have nothing. For 250 years, you're the only people who are allowed to accrue no wealth, no property. You have no homes. You don't even have a bed that you own. You have no clothes that you own. You have no food, no way of taking care of your family. And so black people are just absolutely destitute. You can't understand America without understanding what has happened to black people and what black people have done in response to that. W.E.B. Du Bois says, what would America be without her Negro people? Our country would be unrecognizable in ways good and bad without the white efforts to oppress black Americans and black efforts to assert their rights and their humanity. And I, I just, I hate when we say this is like black American history because one, most of the people doing this was not black, right? They <laughs> were like, Slavery was not a black institution. Slavery was a white institution that was forcible on black people. And we just, we have to speak about this differently. This is not a project about the black experience. It's a project about the American experience. We have to stop segregating the history. Nicole Hannah-Jones. And that's that. Thank you for being here. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, how pandemics end. And yes, they do end. Are you listening to me, Omicron? Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Kinsey Moreland and Lauren Rabb. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Special thanks to Mike Heflin. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and this madre. Gracias. <laughs>